0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'm going to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Today we're going to look at the story of Mary's anointing of Yeshua which was an act of worship. And we see that the disciples' response to this was, why this waste? I mean, they watch Mary worshiping, and they say, why this waste? You know, this is often the question that non-believers ask when they see a believer who is really dedicated to Christ. To the lost, and sometimes even to other believers, A life of complete devotion to Christ is considered a waste. Is worship a waste? Are we wasting our time and money when we give them in service to Christ? The world may think so, and even some other believers would judge us if we're below the standard of what they consider to be acceptable worship. But we're going to see this morning that Mary just makes it real uncomfortable for all of them. Because her worship is so high, so glorious, that makes the others one, it kind of makes them look bad. We've been looking at chapter 11 for the past four weeks. We finished it last week. And in that chapter, we see that Yeshua demonstrates his seventh and final sign when he raises Lazarus from the dead. He stands at the open tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had been dead for four days, comes out of the tomb, verifying what Yeshua had said earlier in that chapter, I am the resurrection and the life. And the response of the crowd of mourners there was this, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now this is an amazing sign. I mean, He just raised the dead. They'd been there for the four days. They know He was in the grave for the four days. They know He's stunk by now. And they watched this happen and they believed in Him. Now in contrast to that, well, verse 53 says, and from that day forward, they made plans to put Him to death. So many believe, but then the Jewish leaders say, you know, we can't have this. People are going to Him. He's getting a large fall. We've got to stop this. We've got to put Him to death. So in contrast to this hatred that the religious leaders have manifest, stands the love that Mary demonstrates towards the one who she had come to believe in. And this story of Mary's love and worship of Christ is bracketed by the Jewish leadership's desire to kill Him. We have this in the end of chapter 11, they made plans to put Him to death. And then in 12.10 it says, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. As well means they planned to put Yeshua to death, now they're going to put Lazarus to death as well. Alright? Just as they did at the end of chapter 11, they wanted to kill him, because people were coming to believe in him. Verse 11 says, Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Yeshua because of Lazarus, because of his testimony, because here's a man who was dead and is alive. They want to put him to death also. The more the people realized who Yeshua was and placed their trust in Him, the more the leaders ramped up their attempts to kill Him. So sandwiched between these two events of the chief priest's murderous plots to kill Yeshua, to kill Lazarus, stands the story of Mary and her sacrificial worship of Christ. So, you know, the fact that it's bracketed by this hatred, I think, just really makes it stand out. And John, Lazarus is good at that. You know, all through he uses these little things to help us to understand what he's trying to say. Now, the first 11 chapters of this Gospel describe the ministry of our Lord. And many scholars have called the first 11 chapters the book of signs. Because we have the seven signs that Yeshua has done to demonstrate who He is. And this this first 11 chapters cover a period of about three years. Alright? But the second half of the book that runs from chapter 12 to chapter 21 covers one week. Alright? This is the last week. We see that in 12.1. Six days before Passover. Yeshua therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Yeshua had raised from the dead. Six days before Passover. Passover, Passover, this is the Passover that Yeshua will die. So we are now six days before His death. We're in the last week, starting with chapter 12 of Yeshua's life. Now, the Passover always takes place on the 14th of Nisan, which means this dinner is taking place on the 8th of Nisan. Now, most commentators put this dinner on Saturday, the Sabbath, because they see Christ's death taking place on a Friday. Now that time frame just doesn't work for me. But I could be wrong, but it doesn't work, alright? Because if you're going to accept the, literally that Yeshua spent three days and three nights in the grave, you got to put the crucifixion on Wednesday. And I know there's a lot of argument about that. But that position that it took place on Wednesday That predates the Roman Catholic view of a Friday crucifixion. So, it goes back even further. The Passover was the first of the three annual feasts that all Jewish males were expected to attend. All male Jews, now, at this time, the time of Yeshua, it had come to be that the male Jews who lived within a 15 mile radius of Jerusalem had to come. But far more actually came, some from long distances. Yeshua regularly attended the Jerusalem for the Passover, as did many other Galileans. And for a month before the feast, the synagogues would expound the meaning of the Passover in order to you know, bring people up to date so that this would be fresh in their minds. They would teach it daily in the school. The roads were fixed up. They would do some work to fix the roads. They would repair bridges. They would whitewash the tombs. So nobody would accidentally walk on a grave and then be impure and couldn't celebrate the Passover. So they went through a lot of work preparing for this. It was a big deal. The city would swell to huge numbers. People would stay wherever they could. Sometimes they'd camp without the city. They'd just set up camp because there wasn't room for them. And it was normal that people would offer lodging for free at this time because Passover was a time when they were pouring in there. Now, On the 10th of Nisan, four four days before the Passover, a lamb was chosen. A lamb without blemish. It had to be set aside for the participating group, but not necessarily a family. It it could be a family, but it could go beyond that. You know, they, they figured around 10 to 20 people would get together and get this lamb. And this family or other grouping would share the lamb. One or more of their number would go to the temple with an unblemished blemished lamb for the sacrifice. Each Passover lamb was slain in the temple and then the carcass was taken home. The blood would be caught in bowls. The priest would offer it on the altar. The representative would then take the carcass home and they would roast it and eat it for the Passover meal in memory of the great deliverance that took place out of Egypt. When God slew the firstborn of Egypt and passed over the houses, where the blood of the Lamb had been smeared on the doorpost. That's Exodus 12. I think we're all pretty familiar with that. So what we have to understand here, the Jews have been doing this Passover for 1,600 years. It's a picture. It's a type. God is trying to teach them something. And it's a picture and a type of something much greater. It pictured the redemption of God's elect through the sacrifice of the Son of God. That's what the picture is about. Exodus 12.3 says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's household, a lamb for the household. Now who is the anti-type of the lamb? It's Yeshua. A lamb is rather symbolic in Christological interpretation. How do we know this? Well, we learn it from the New Testament when Yeshua first appeared in public and John the Baptist was announcing him. How did he announce him? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lazarus is speaking here when he says this, or John the Baptist when he says this, is speaking to the first century Jewish audience. The image of the Lamb would have commemorated to them, they would have been reminded of the sacrifice. Writing to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul draws a parallel for all time when he says, Cleanse out your old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Then he says this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Christ is the Passover lamb. The lamb was to be a male lamb, was to be one year old, without spot or blemish. And Peter states that Yeshua was such a sacrifice. In 1 Peter 1.19, But with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without spot or blemish. So the typical significance of the Passover is very clear in New Testament writings. Probably there's no Mosaic institution more perfect of a type than this. The first Passover was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan. Then almost 2,000 years later, Yeshua was crucified on the 14th of Nisan. While Israel was celebrating their Passover... Yeshua, the Lamb of God, was being crucified. He was the Lamb of God that the ancient Passover Lamb typified. He died to save us from God's judgment, just as the Lamb died instead of the firstborn in Egypt. Now, Passover pictures the substitutionary death of the Messiah. Yeshua was buried on the same day He was killed, on Passover. He was put in the earth before the sun set on the 14th of Nisan, the next day was the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which started on the 15th. And it pictured deliverance. Because the children of Israel left Egypt on the first day of Unleavened Bread and they crossed the Red Sea by the end of the seventh day feast. Unleavened Bread is a picture. It's a seven-day feast picturing perfect redemption. The children of Israel were set free. And then we have the Feast of first fruits, which I think is very clear, pictures the resurrection. So, when you look at the feast, you actually see the gospel in the feast. And we've done a study on these feasts. They're online there. Uh, I think there's eight parts. It's just amazing the picture that these things give us. And if you haven't looked at that series, I would encourage you to go do it. It's uh, just tremendous what you see when you understand the feast. So, as we've seen, Israel's Passover was very important, it's a very important annual event for the Jews. And it's steeped in biblical regulation, as well as centuries of cultural tradition. Every aspect of the Passover shares one thing in common. They all point to Messiah. So for 1,600 years, Israel's rehearsing this over and over, all picturing the Savior. And here we see that the chief priests and the scribes, those who all their lives had observed this Passover awaiting for Messiah, we're now planning to kill Messiah on this feast. They were so blinded by their tradition, they couldn't see the Lamb of God who was standing right in front of them. They're working, preparing Passover, and it all points to Christ. And they're working to kill Christ. But that's what had to happen on Passover. So it says, Yeshua therefore came to Bethany. Now, the chapter begins with a dinner in Bethany. Yeshua comes back to Bethany. Remember, he left because they want to kill him, so he got away, because it wasn't time for him to die yet. Well, now guess what? It's time for him to die. He's six days before Passover. He's going to die on Passover. He knows that, so he comes back to Bethany. Bethany's just a little village at the foot of the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, less than two miles from Jerusalem. And they're having a dinner there to honor Yeshua and honor what has happened with Lazarus, their brother. And verse 2 says, So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus, one of those, reclining at the table. Now, <clears throat> most biblical scholars assume that since Judas is mentioned, we haven't read it yet, but you stand read the passage, Judas is here, okay? Since Judas is mentioned in this text, in this account, that all the apostles are probably present at this dinner, along with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and some others are there also. They're all gathered together for this dinner, and the dinner is to honor Yeshua. Now, let me ask you something. Where is this dinner held? Okay. Good. Good, class. You're paying attention. It's in Bethany. Whose house is this dinner at? Okay. Most people assume it's at Lazarus' house. The text does not say that. Okay. Okay. But the text does say where, but just not this text. Okay? So let's go over to Mark, to the parallel account. And while he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, some believe that Simon the leper was the father of Lazarus. The father of Mary, the father of Martha. I think that's a good possibility when you compare the text. Now, you see, there's something wrong with that text there. Do what? Okay, poured it on his head. We'll get to that. But Simon the leper. Would these people be meeting and having dinner with a leper? No. So it should really say Simon the ex-leper. Okay, he's not a leper anymore. Well, what happened to him? How did he not become a leper? Well, obviously the Lord healed him. The text doesn't tell us that, but we have he calls him the leper so we get the thing. We understand it. He was a leper. The Lord healed him. That's the only way lepers got healed back then. All right, because leprosy would make you an outcast. You weren't allowed around people. Matter of fact, you had to yell, you know, when you saw anybody coming around and let them know, unclean, unclean, so they stayed away from you. They had leper colonies. They would all get together because they were all unclean. Well, this man has been healed. He's not an outcast any longer. Yeshua touched him. Yeshua healed him. And now he's a part of society and so he throws this dinner party. And I think it's a good chance it's Lazarus, Mary, Martha's father. And they're dining together here is a picture of fellowship. When the Lord and the scriptures talk about dining, supping together, it's a time of fellowship. So there's two very special people reclining at this table with the Lord. One's an ex-leper, one's an ex-dead man. Okay? And leprosy was you, it made you socially dead, religiously dead, because you couldn't worship, you couldn't go to the house of God. So these are really two dead, ex-dead men here, and now they're both alive. And it says, back to our text in John, it says, Martha served. That doesn't surprise anybody, right? This is consistent with what we see of Martha in Luke chapter 10, where she's busy serving the Lord and serving the disciples. She's just a servant. Well, let me tell you something here. The word served here is the Greek word diakoneo. You know where that, where you, what we do with that word? Deacon, okay? This is the word for deacon. Deacons are servants. So Martha's doing something here, guess what, that we are all called to do. People say, well, I don't have the gift to serving. You don't need a gift to serve, okay? You just need to stop being selfish and help out, all right? There's no gift needed to serve, all right? Look at Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, We're all called to be servants. Servants of the Lord, servants of each other. So, Martha, she's here having a dinner. She's just doing what she does because she likes to do this stuff. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. So, sitting at the table here is the man who was dead that the Lord had brought back to life, as well as a man who's alive now but will soon be dead in six days. All right, the Lord. So verse 3 tells us, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Yeshua and wiped His feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now, all four of the Gospel accounts have an account of a woman anointing Yeshua with precious ointment. And I think they all agree in enough detail and language to suggest that they're all Telling the same story. Now, most people would disagree with that, okay? Most people agree that uh, Matthew and Mark are probably talking about the same thing that we're seeing here in John chapter 12. But most people say Luke, no, it doesn't, just doesn't fit in with Luke at all. Uh, because Luke, all the gospel accounts indicate that he's in Bethany on the eve or during Passover week, you know, to make this anointing, this prophetic anointing for the burial of Yeshua. And Matthew and Mark's gospel mention the dinner at Bethany, but they place it two days away from Passover. And so people say, well, Mark and Matthew says two days, Lazarus says six, which is it? Well, here's the thing you have to understand. Matthew and Mark are notoriously loose when it comes to chronology. They don't care about chronology. They're telling a story, and that's what was important to them. You know, we get hung up on chronology. They didn't. The Gospel writers didn't. That's why you think, well, this doesn't seem right. It's right here. They're telling a story. And they want you to get the theological significance of it. So they're not hung up on when it happened. So don't get hung up on that. and Don't say, oh, there's an there's a error here in the gospels. No, there's no error at all. Alright? Well, Luke tells the anointing story in a way that puts it at odds with the other accounts, though. See, he places the story much earlier in Yeshua's career. It's in Luke 7. He drops the Bethany location. He drops the reference to Yeshua's burial. And he changes the story to give it an entirely different point. And so many see this as an entirely different incident. They say, this isn't even connected with those. But I think that the similarities to the other Gospels are too strong to just dismiss it. I don't think you say, well, you know, that doesn't even fit in there at all. Let's look at Luke. Luke 7.37 Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So you see the differences already, right? we got a woman that's a sinner. He's at a Pharisee's house. Um, But we do have an alabaster flask there, right? Well, Luke's phrase here, an alabaster flask of ointment, is identical, word for word, with what we have in Mark 14.3. Mark says, The anointing took place in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Luke says Yeshua is addressing the host as Simon. So do we have two different anointings that involve an alabaster flask of ointment and happen to be in the house of two different men named Simon? I know that's possible, but I think it's clear that Luke's anointing story is the same story found in the other gospels. A story that Luke moved and Luke adapted for his own purpose and theological teaching. He's not, you know, the, the reason we have four gospels is they're viewing things from different aspects. It's not all exactly the same story. They're highlighting different things. So I think Luke is talking about this event also. Now, Luke's anointing story doesn't name the woman. Any more that the other synoptics don't name the woman either. Now Lazarus doesn't. John, right? He says it's Mary. But he does make the unique specification that the woman was a sinner. Ladies, how would you like to be known as that designation? That, you know, the woman that was a sinner. Well, here's what's interesting. Immediately following this anointing story, Luke names some women who traveled with Yeshua. In chapter 8. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So here we see Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been cast out. So I think maybe Luke is hinting that Mary Magdalene, the sinful woman, she's the sinful woman who was doing the anointing. And again, very possible. Now let me pose to you a possibility, and you've got to think through this for a second, okay? Lazarus' sister Mary and Mary Magdalene may be the same woman. Let me tell you why I think that. The fourth Gospel has Mary with her sister Martha at the raising of her brother Lazarus, right? She's there when Lazarus is raised, All right. Next, still in the company of her brother and sister, she anoints Yeshua for burial. So again, her and Lazarus are together and she anoints Him. Next, now called Mary Magdalene, she's at the cross. Still with her brother, but He's now called the disciple whom Yeshua loved. And finally, she's the discoverer of the empty tomb who runs and tells her brother, the disciple whom Yeshua loved, and Peter. Now if Mary, Lazarus' sister, and Mary Magdalene are one person, then her story moves directly from Lazarus to the disciple whom Yeshua loved and proves that they're one and the same person, Lazarus and the disciple whom Yeshua loved. They're connected. The fourth Gospel has carefully paired Mary with Lazarus In certain episodes, and then paired Mary Magdalene with the disciple whom Yeshua loved in certain episodes. I don't think this pattern is coincidental. I think it's an effort to tell us something. And you look that up for yourself, investigate that a little. I just think it's possible, all right? So, Mary, Lazarus' sister, is also called Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Now, hang on to that for a second. I think knowing who this woman is really helps us understand what she does. If Mary had been possessed by seven demons and the Lord healed her, verse 3 says, therefore. Now, the therefore, the point here is that since she's at this dinner to honor Yeshua for the... You know She's honoring. She's doing what she's doing because they're there to honor Him. Therefore, she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and she anointed the feet of Yeshua and wiped His feet with her hair. Alright. This is expensive ointment. It says made from pure nard. It was probably an oil extracted from an East Indian plant in the Himalayas which bore the same name as the plant. It was very costly because of the expense of importing it from India and transporting it to wherever it went. So Mark tells us that this perfume was in an alabaster vial, which is a white, pure marble-type stone that is formed from stalactites in caves. And because the perfumed oil was very expensive, the bottle was designed to just release a little bit at a time, you know, get a couple drops out. You know how perfume bottles work. You don't want the whole thing coming out. You just get a few drops at a time and that's enough. Well, Lazarus tells us that Mary anointed Yeshua's feet, which would have been easily accessible to her as he lay oriental fashion on the couch. He's not sitting at a table. He's not sitting in a chair like you are. It would be kind of hard to get to the feet. He's lying. And so she's sitting on the ground next to him, anointing him. Mark tells us that she broke the vial and then poured it on Christ's head. So, did she anoint his head or his feet? Mark says head. John says feet. we got another discrepancy here. D.A. Carson explains it this way. It is far too large a quantity to have been poured out over the head alone. Second, in both Matthew 26.12 and Mark 14.8, Jesus is reported to say that the perfume was poured on His body in anticipation of His burial. A strange way to refer to His head alone. He says, my body. He didn't say my head. These two observations strongly suggest that the perfume was applied to more than Jesus' head or His feet. Anointing the whole body to include the feet was part of a burial practice. And we have to understand that. Yeshua will equate Mary's actions with the preparation for His burial in verse 7. So Mary, many say, is unconsciously performing a prophetic act of anointing Yeshua. I'm not so sure she's unconsciously doing this. I think Mary has a little bit more insight than your average Christian or disciple, so to speak. right. In the most lavish act of worship that Mary could imagine. She takes... This most valuable treasure and expended all of it upon Christ. She didn't come to Christ and shake out a few drops and, you know, let the aroma fill the room. No. She broke the thing. She released all of its contents on the Lord. And now, you know, when you hear these stories, I think in our minds we maybe have this image of, oh, this gooey oil running down his hair or gooey oil all over him, you know, kind of a mess. But in reality, this perfume was very light. And the moment it touched you would almost quickly evaporate. So what was left was just a strong aroma. What I want you to understand here, what we've got to see in this picture, Mary is here worshiping. This is worship. She had an attitude of devotion to Christ. If she is the woman whose seven demons were cast out of, her life has been drastically transformed by Christ. And when we talk about worship, primarily we think, you know, something like what we're doing right now, a worship service. Worship is more than just getting together to read the Bible or to sing songs or to preach. I think that could be worship if our heart is right, but if our heart is not right, that's not worship. Worship can take place here, but it doesn't have to be. It's got to come from a heart. If it doesn't, it's just a ritual and those rituals don't do anything for the lord. So what is worship? You know, you would get so many different answers to this question depending on who you ask. But worship is honor and adoration directed to Yahweh. Worship comes from the old Anglo-Saxon word worship. Worship. You're giving worth To somebody. You're honoring them because they're worthy. And so it's worship. Now, the New Testament uses several words for worship. Two of them are particularly noteworthy. Proskuneo, which means to kiss toward or to bow down. It signifies humble adoration. Another word used for worship is lotruo. It means rendering honor or paying homage. Both terms carry the idea of giving. Because worship is giving something to Yahweh. It begins with the giving of ourselves, then our attitudes, and then our possessions. I'm going to tell you something I don't normally talk about here, but I think this is important, okay? You don't hear me talk about money because that's all the church talks about. But... This is a text that I think deals with that. And I want you to understand. I believe that the scriptures teach that giving is worship. It's worship. And this is what we see here with Mary, and I will get into that in a little bit, but I want you to notice what Paul told the Philippians. This letter to the Philippians is a thank you note. Okay? It's basically bottom line, that's what this is. Paul's saying, thank you. You guys really ministered to me. He says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They sent him financial gifts to help get him through while he was ministering. So it's a thank you note. He ca- Listen to what he calls the gift. He says he calls it a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul viewed their financial gift to him as an offering to God, as a sacrifice. Now I want you to notice particularly the words Paul uses here. And the problem is, you're reading your English Bible, you miss all this stuff, all right? But the word fragrant here is from the Greek word euodia. Offering is from the word osme, and sacrifice is from the Greek word thusia. Now what's really interesting here is all three of these words are used in Ephesians 5 of Christ's sacrificial offering of Himself on man's behalf. Ephesians 5.2 Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant Yodia offering asme and sacrifice thusia to God. Christ loved us and gave Himself up. Because He loved, He gave. We see that in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave. I don't think you can disassociate loving and giving. These words express the language of worship. Giving, sacrificial giving, motivated by a heart of love is worship. Now, a lot of people give and it's not worship they give out of guilt, they give because they've been browbeaten to death by the church to give, and if you don't give, God's going to break your washing machine. I've heard those messages, all right? God will take the tithe out of your hide, okay? That's just such nonsense, but it does help the church survive, so preachers do it, okay? But I'm talking about worship, giving that comes from a heart of love. True worship comes out of a heart of a desire to please God, to show one's gratitude to God, to show one's love for God. It's from the heart. There's a right reason behind it. And if we offer up something to God, whether it be our time, our physical effort, our prayer, our money, our service to others with a right heart, a heart of love, a heart of adoration and thanksgiving, that's true worship. And this is what Mary is doing. She's worshiping. And she didn't just pour out a few drops of ointment. She poured out all the contents. What this text says to me is her love is not calculated. It's extravagant. It's the kind of worship that makes other average Christians say, you're going a little too far with that. Really? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is Judas asking the question. All right? You know, Judas sees Mary worshiping and he goes, wait, wait a minute. Man, you could have sold that for 300 denarii. You know what a denarii is? It's a day's wage. So guess what? 300 denarii is what? This is a year's wage, people. Today, this would be the equivalent of around $35,000. What did she do with that $35,000? She just poured it over the Lord. This is extravagance, people, but she's doing it out of a heart of love and devotion. This probably represents everything Mary had. It could have been an inheritance. It could have been something she saved up. She invested everything to get this perfume probably because for, for burial. These perfumes were normally used for burial. She didn't use it on her brother though for some reason. But he was anointed. They did anoint. But, so she would have this. And she decided, I'm not going to go sprinkle a few drops on the Lord. My heart is overwhelmed with love for this man. I'm going to give it all. And just as we find in Luke's Gospel, Martha served while Mary offers worship. Mary's sitting at Yeshua's feet while her sister's working in the kitchen preparing a meal. And she's sitting at His feet hanging on every word. Hanging on every word that's being said. To her, Yeshua is the most important person in the world. She doesn't care about eating. She's not worried about lunch. Martha, that's okay if you want to do that. I'm focused on this man. I want to learn from him. I want to take in all that I can. Those who are in love with Yeshua and overflowing with gratitude to Him sometimes do strange things. Strange to your average Christian. Because your average Christian is average. Okay, And I don't think we're called to be average. I really don't. But this is a woman who loved the Lord. He had been a real friend to her. If this is Mary Magdalene, he had cast seven demons out of her. That would be a (laughs) very remarkable experience. But then she saw her brother die and she's grieved. And then the Lord brings her brother back to life again. And so she's just absolutely in love with Him and wants to give all she can. And now they're all together for a dinner. They're having one last meal together. He's dying in six days. Does she know that? I think she might. She thought this might be the last chance to do something special. So she sees the opportunity. She takes an alabaster vial of costly perfume. She breaks it. And She pours out $35,000 in a few seconds. And Lazarus tells us that his sister Mary wiped Yeshua's feet with her hair. This is an act of humility. Now normally Jewish women never unbound their hair in public. And I think most of you understand that now a little better, right? Loose hair was a sign of loose morals. Okay? But, you know, we we taught on this from 1 Corinthians. In that day, women's hair was considered sexual. Okay? And I don't get all the details of that now. If you're interested, you can look up that other message because we got quite in detail. But it was what they believed at the time. All right? So this was an act of humility. Yes, I got you, Kath. I'm not going any further with that. <laughs> Martha just stuck her head out of the kitchen and says, uh, let's move on. <laughs> now, notice what he tells us the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is a a note from a first-hand witness. He was there. And he remembers, he says, man, the house just, you smelled this. It was in Mary's hair. Wherever Mary went, you smelled this fragrance. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, you know, just a little bit earlier in chapter 11, Martha says, by now he stinks. So we talked about the stink of Lazarus and now we hear the aroma of Mary. Contrast, that. you know, this is how John writes. In later rabbinic literature, in Ecclesiasticus Rabbah 711, it says this, The fragrance of good oil is diffused from the bedroom to the dining hall, but a good name is diffused from one end of the world to the other. You know, if this saying was known in the first century, and we're not sure if it was or not, this might be Lazarus' way of indicating that Mary's act of devotion Would be spoken of throughout the entire world. And that's what Mark tells us. Now, you know, we read this story and we admire Mary. We say, man, that is just incredible. Well, let me tell you something. If you want to follow Mary's example of worship, you have to follow her example of sitting at the feet of Yeshua. And I think that's the problem. I think that's the problem in our culture today. Christians don't even read their Bibles. We talk about it. We say it's the Word of God. It's the inspired, inerrant Word of God. But we don't spend time in it. Every time we encounter Mary in the Gospels, she's pictured at the feet of Yeshua. That is a picture from that culture of discipleship. You studied, you learned at the feet of someone else. We saw her at the feet in Luke. Studying, listening to our Lord teach. We saw her at the feet in chapter 11. She's weeping and pouring out her heart because her brother has died. And now we see her at the feet again, this time worshiping, pouring out her love. The only way you'll come to the point of loving the Lord like Mary does is if you've been sitting at His feet studying His Word. And I really think that's the problem in our culture. We have TV, we have internet, we have so many distractions. We have more free time than any people on the earth. And yet we spend so little time reading our Bible. It's just not important to us. We're not disciples. And so we see and act like Mary's and we go, that's crazy. Why would you waste that money? Just take all the poor people you've got to feed." We don't get it. So Mary is worshiping in an extravagant manner. She had the right to do this. She had the freedom to do this. She had the prerogative to do this. But she was criticized as soon as she did it. By who? Unbelievers? No. Disciples. one unbeliever, Judas, was criticizing her. The text says, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples... He was about to betray him. You know, anytime Judas is mentioned, they always connect this. He's the traitor. He doesn't get named without being labeled the traitor. All right? Right. (laughs) He said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So he's questioning her motives. Why would you do something like that? Mark put it this way. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? Remember, she's worshiping. They call it a waste. Why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Let me tell you, what Mary did doesn't make sense to most people. Because to most people, worship is a waste. you got to do it for yourself. you got to serve yourself. Get what you can get out of life. You know, this, why would you take your possessions you worked so hard for and spend them foolishly on worship? So immediately the nitpickers, the complainers, come out and they begin to talk. And the terminology here, Mark, is really strong. It says they responded indignantly. The Greek word there means that they were violently angered. They got angry. Why would you get angry over seeing someone worship? Do you know why? It blows the standard. Wait, well, if you're worshiping like that, you're making me look pretty bad here because I'm not wasting that kind of money on the Lord. And so it's like, hey, wait a second. Don't do something like that. They were very upset. This perfume, they said, you know, a year's wages. Think how many poor people could have been fed. Now we see from our text in John that Judas is the first one who verbalized this, but the other gospel writers tell the other disciples picked up on it. You know, Judas starts complaining, they're all jumping, yeah, that's right. What about the poor? Judas couldn't stomach what was happening. All he saw was the costly ointment. Being wasted. Immediately his mind begins to calculate how much this could be. He's the one to come up. That's a, that's a year's wages. Now, imagine Mary right now. She's a follower of Christ. She's with the disciples, they're traveling with the Lord. She pours out her heart in act of worship, and they're sitting there criticizing her. Mary, that's wrong. What you did is wrong. Are you not, Don't you care about the poor? I mean, you just dumped a bunch of smelly stuff on the Lord. What's the good that do to anybody? That could have fed people. Isn't it easy to judge somebody else? Man, it's so easy to judge somebody else. He said now, we're getting a commentary here from Lazarus, okay? Uh, By the way, for those of you who are new to us here, um, I believe Lazarus wrote this Gospel, not John. That's why I keep saying Lazarus. Lazarus was the author. He said this, so he's giving us commentary. Judas said this not because he cared about the poor. I want to make that straight clear, okay? This guy's not concerned about the poor. He said it because he's a thief. They didn't know this was going on at the time. They didn't understand this then. Okay, but remember, he's writing years later, and so he adds this, okay. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So Judas' excuse about the poor was just an opportunity for him to steal more money. Because if the ointment was sold and put in the purse, he had the purse. That's a year's wage that I could spend on myself and do whatever I want with. But now you've blown it. The parallel accounts of Matthew and Mark seem to indicate that after this incident, immediately Judas went away and made a deal with the authorities to sell Yeshua. So see, he's all about money. That's all he sees. This is money. This can benefit me. So he sells out the Lord. Yeshua said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now normally you wouldn't anoint the feet of a living person. They didn't do that. You would anoint the head, as we see in Mark and Matthew, but you would anoint the feet of a corpse when preparing it for burial. So Mary perfumed, maybe unconsciously, maybe not, I think not. It's a prophetic, it's a symbolic action. One which Yeshua understood, and I think Mary maybe understood, but the disciples didn't get it. It took them forever to get They're slow learners, okay? He said, so that she may keep it. There's so much debate on this verse. It's a difficult verse to interpret. Keep what? Well, I think Yeshua probably meant that the disciples should permit Mary to keep the custom of anointing for burial. Mark adds this, And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So the Lord here makes a promise in Mark a promise that the sacrifice, the worship of this woman Mary, Mary of Bethany, will be spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, let me ask you a question. Whenever you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, you're trying to encourage them, you know, you tell them to go read the what? The gospel of John. Why? It's the only book in the Bible that specifically says it was written to bring people to faith in Christ. So you tell them to go read that, right? Go read the fourth gospel. And in the gospel is the story of Mary's worship. And so after 20 centuries of Christianity, everywhere the Gospels preach, we hear the story of Mary of Bethany. And we hear of her worship towards her Savior. Here we are today, 2,000 years later, fulfilling the very word of our Lord as we talk about Mary of Bethany and her worship when she anointed the Lord for worship. The Lord says, the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. Now, it's funny because people will take this statement as an excuse not to help the poor. Well, the Lord said they'd always be there, so we'll never overcome poverty, so don't even try. People can take and twist the Scriptures any which way they want. Where did, did the Lord just make this up out of His head? The poor you always have with you? Do you think maybe He's quoting Scripture somewhere? you think the Lord knew Scripture? Huh? He's a rabbi with Shemekah. He knew the whole Scripture, okay? Well, Deuteronomy 15 says this, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. You got that? You're always going to have poverty. Now watch. Therefore, because there always be poor, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. See, this teaching is not to neglect the poor, He's saying if there weren't no poor, you wouldn't have opportunity to show your love for God. You know, if you study the history of the evangelical church, you're going to find that no group, no company of people, no religion has ever helped the downtrodden, the sick, the needy like Christianity has. Building hospitals, caring for people, reaching out to people, helping people. He says, but you don't always have me. You know what Yeshua is saying here? People get, get upset about this. He's saying, I'm more worthy of your unselfish devotion than all the poor put together. <gasps> How can He say that? He can say it because He's the Son of God. Look what we saw in John 5.23. This verse, if you don't know, this verse needs to be marked in your Bible. This verse needs to be highlighted. Listen, Yeshua says, that all may honor the Son. He's speaking of Himself. Just as they honor the Father. What? What? He is due every bit of honor that you give to God. Why? Whoever does not honor the Son, Yeshua, does not honor the Father. Yeshua is saying, I'm more worthy than all those poor. He's accepting the worship of Mary gave Him because He's God. And He's worthy of all our worship. By saying, you always have the poor, you don't always have Me. He's telling them that He should... Be their focus right now. I've only got six days left on this earth. I need to be your focus, not the poor. Mary's done a good thing. Leave her alone. I wish the Lord could still say that to people. Leave them alone. Because so often, we like I said, we're so quick to judge, so quick to criticize. As reading this story, I thought about Eli, the priest Eli and Hannah. Remember? Hannah's pouring out her heart to the Lord. She's crying. And what's Eli say? Hey, you drunk. You drunk woman, what's wrong with you? Can you imagine? Your heart is broken. Again, you're pouring out your heart to the Lord and you're accused of drunkenness. He's the priest. Judging her. People, even if you think you know all the facts, I guarantee you don't know all the facts. So don't judge. Leave that to God. God, God's the judge of all the earth, okay? Okay? And he didn't appoint you as his second counsel, all right? So don't, just leave it, all right? We're called to love one another. Uh, Too often I've seen people judge, and judge with the best motives they think, but they just, you don't know all the facts. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Yeshua was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So here's the Jews, and I don't think the term here is, most of the time this term is used in this Gospel, it's a negative term, it refers to the leadership. I don't think it does here. It's not always used that way. These are just the Jews who came. And notice why they came. They came to see Lazarus. Hey, we never saw a dead man before come to light. So they're there for Lazarus. That's why they're there. They heard about it. and they want, We want to see this guy. That's pretty cool. But verse 10 says, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Well, we'll kill you too. We're going to kill the Lord, but we're going to kill you also now. Why? Because He's a witness. He is living, breathing proof of Yeshua's power. And as long as He's alive, people can go, I was dead and now I'm alive. No, we'll get rid of you. You talk about destroying evidence. Okay? That's what they want to do. They just want to destroy the evidence. Verse 11 says because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Yeshua. They believed that Yeshua was the Messiah because only God could give life. And only God could give life to someone who had been dead for 4 days. So this is causing them to their eyes to be opened and see the truth. Now verse 3 is kind of the central verse of this text. This is Mary's worship. And like I said, this is is set in the middle in contrast to the hatred of the religious leaders. It's bracketed by their hatred. And I want you to understand, Mary's not worshiping Yeshua out of duty. She's not worshiping out of pragmatism. This is sheer love and devotion. Mary did what she did because she had a perception of Christ that even the apostles at that point lacked. She knew He was worthy of extravagant love And she knew this because she had spent time sitting at His feet. If Mary would have had two of these alabaster jars, I bet she'd have broke both of them. She didn't care about money. She wasn't thinking about her future. She wasn't thinking about anything else. She just wanted to show the Lord she loved Him. Now let me ask you something. Can we worship Yeshua today the way that Mary did? You might say, well, no, because He's not physically here and we can't touch Him. We can't pour stuff on Him. Let me show you something. Yeshua said this, and the King will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You did it to me. See, when you have a heart of love and service to others, you're serving and worshiping Christ. Because as you serve the body of Christ, you're serving Christ. So, yeah, we can do, we don't have physically here, but we have the body of Christ here, which is all believers. And as we serve them, we're serving the Lord. You know, I think when the world sees a life that is devoted to loving Christ. They often ask, "Why this waste?" Why this waste? Other believers often ask that question. You know, people will try to calm Christians down, "You know, you don't have to give that much. You don't have to serve that. You know, you know, come on, Lord wants you to have a life also." You got a bunch of Job's comforters coming along trying to discourage the believer because it ruins the curve for the rest of us. You know? We don't like what you're doing. I'll tell you something, people, though. When we, when we give our lives in service to the Lord, it's not a waste at all. There's nothing greater that we can do with our lives than to pour it out in service to Christ. Now, most of us spend our whole life in service to ourself. And our goals, our desires, our wants, but we're called to serve the Lord. So let me ask you. How does your worship of Yeshua compare to that of Mary? How does it compare? Well, let me say this. I had this in the text. It disappeared. I don't know what happened to it. But, because I wanted you to see it. Think about this. If others aren't mocking our worship, we may need to spend more time sitting at His feet. Because I think the church is just very cold, very indifferent, very matter-of-fact. and So I think if you're really living for the Lord, if your life is sold out, if you're committed to Him, I think unbelievers and believers are going to mock. It's a waste. Why would you do all that? So I think if we're not being mocked for our worship, we maybe need to spend a little more time sitting at His feet, learning from Him. And people, that is so important that we understand that the Lord is revealed to us through the Word of God, through the pages of Scripture. And as we pour through it, we do so to walk in fellowship, to learn of Him, to understand Him. You know, There was a couple a while back that were involved in this ministry and uh, for a time they were reading cover to cover through their bible in two weeks every two weeks they read through their bible they took a challenge that I give I challenge Christians read your bible at least once a year well they said yeah that's not enough they moved it up a little they moved it up more every two weeks they read cover to cover and they had a notebook because every time they read through, they would be looking for something, and they wrote down in the notebook. You know what? Most Christians that I told that story to had a negative response. Did they have jobs? Did they do? Did they? In other words, see that bothers people because it ruins the curve. It, it, then you can say, well, there's someone who's doing this, and so it's real, and. They loved it. They did it because they wanted to. And I just believe with all my heart, the more time you spend with the Lord, the more you're going to know Him, the more you're going to love Him, the more you're going to serve Him. All right. I know I quit teaching and went to meddling, but I just think that's the text. Mary's just a blessed woman who loves the Lord and in typical fashion, she's criticized by the believers. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for this marvelous text, Lord. Father, I pray that by Your Spirit You would grip our hearts. I pray we'd all be Marys, desiring to sit at Your feet, to learn, to take in the Word of God, to be all that You'd have us to be because we know You and love You. And then, Lord, that we would pour out our life and sacrifice to You. Lord, because You're worthy of it. Thank You, Father, for this text. Use it in our lives, I pray. Amen.